Hi, I'm Lisa Moore, one of the pastors here at GT Church in Victoria, BC. Welcome to our podcast. All of the content you'll find here is meant to point you to Jesus and to encourage you in your journey wherever you're at. Enjoy the message. Good morning. Happy Canada Day. Did you celebrate yesterday? This has been my, um, my father-in-law's favorite question to ask. How old is Canada? 156. I heard it out there. Give yourselves a hand. You're Canadian patriots. You know how old your country is. Way to go. Uh, it's, uh, it's wonderful to be with you. Wonderful to have this weekend together. And um, it's good to see some of you have uh, come to church today knowing you got an extra day off. I appreciate that. It's great. You can rest tomorrow. Today will go hard for Jesus. Good to have you here. Good to see everybody in the house. And uh, thanks, uh, Lisa, for all those good announcements. Really exciting place to be. And if you're, if you're new to us, just, hey, welcome right in. There's a lot of stuff that you can jump into, and we're so glad that you're here. Um, I am going to continue in our series, but I want to start with um, a quote, and it's actually more of a statement, and it's a statement that Christians make, and I, I, I'm going to share it with you. And then I'll get your feedback a little bit. And here it is. Christianity is not a religion. It's a relationship. Now, how many of you have ever heard that before? If you've heard that before, just wave at me. Okay. Now, how many of you have ever said that before? Wave at me. I'm not setting you up. It's okay. Just wondering. Okay. Yeah. Uh, It's a very interesting statement. Because when you would like, you know, look at, you know, religious studies, Christianity is one of the religions that's a part of the study along with several other major religions, and then, of course, little spatterings of other smaller um, uh, religious minorities. But the question is, why is it that Christians say that Christianity is not a religion when, for all practical purposes, it's lumped in and, and categorized as a religion and set against other religions like, you know, Islam or Buddhism or Hinduism? Why is it that Christians say, no, no, it's not a religion. Well, it might help if we understand sort of a working definition of religion. I think this will help us. So I'll give you two words, and they both have Latin roots. The first one is this, religar. Religar. It's a a, a root word in Latin that means to bind, and it's where our word for religion comes. There's another one, and it is religio, and that means obligate. So if you put those together, you're really talking about being bound and obligated. That's what religion is by definition. Religion is an attempt to understand and then climb the path to God. And in that attempt, people obligate and bind themselves to certain practices. So again, I ask, why do the followers of Jesus say that Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship? Here's why. Because Christianity asserts that man can do nothing to reach God. In fact, one of the verses in the Bible says that all of my righteousness, all my righteous works, actually are like filthy rags. They're useless. They're dirty. They're they're without benefit to me. In other words, the Christian perspective is this. You can bind yourselves with strict practices. You can obligate yourself to certain standards and restrictions. And yet, God in his infinite holiness remains untouchable. You cannot reach him. Therefore, 
Christians would say that religion is misguided no matter how sincere. So I hope you're not depressed. We're not done. We're just getting started. Because Christianity asserts that there's another way. There's another way to get to God. In fact, here's the deal. You don't have to scratch and claw your way to God because God came down to us in the person of Jesus. Hallelujah. It's pretty good news. I just saved you a lot of work, okay? A lot of effort, a lot of trying, a lot of scratching and clawing. Listen, religion is right about something though, okay? Religion is right that God has demands and standards. Fair enough. God demands righteousness. He demands holiness. He demands perfection. So how are you doing on that? I'm so thankful there's a different way. But if you're a Christian, you don't try to meet those demands, do you? You don't try to meet the demands of God because that's a vain pursuit. And Christianity calls you to a a relationship to God's perfect son who through his love gave himself to fulfill God's demands on your behalf. And that is really good news. Amen? (laughs) Praise the Lord. I'm feeling encouraged. You know, I... I know that many of you have your own story, but I am a, um, a church kid. I grew up in church, and I may have told you this story before, but it, it fits with what we're talking about. When I was a kid, I understood religion, but I didn't understand Jesus in the way that I do now. I didn't understand grace and mercy and forgiveness and um, the level of peace I can have with the work of Christ. I was always a little concerned about where I was at with Jesus. So I was the kid who would get saved every Sunday and every night before bed, dear Jesus, forgive me for all my sins, amen, before I went to bed. And also, in, if ever there was lightning or thunder growing up in Arizona, there's a lot of lightning and thunder. And I wasn't quite sure how I was doing that night. I thought maybe judgment was coming. God was on his way. So I would call my pastor on his home phone, this was before caller ID, and I would let it ring, and then when he picked it up, no matter what time it was, groggy or not, I would hang up, because I knew I was good. If he's here, I'm okay, right? I'm good. So, you know, that's simply because I didn't understand what Jesus has done for me, right? I didn't understand how safe and secure I am in the hands of my loving Savior, Jesus. And, and, and we teeter between religion and relationship. And the focus of the Christian is not on religion and its practices, but on Jesus and a vital relationship to him as our loving Savior. And Jesus says of himself, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He says, I am a path. I'm a sure path. I'm the way. Religion says you got to try to get to me. you got to figure out the path, and you got to do all this stuff. And Jesus says, no, no, I'm the path. He also says, I'm the door, and I'm the gate. He says all of these things, saying, hello, access to God comes through relationship to Jesus. So the Bible teaches us that right now, Jesus is interceding for us at God's right hand. So what does that actually mean? Jesus looks at you and says to the Father, that one belongs to me. 
That one is in Christ. That one is saved. That one is mine. And the father looks back to Jesus and says, then they're perfect. Wow. Okay, so if that's you, is it true that you're perfect? No, but Jesus is. Jesus is. And because you're in Jesus, you find perfection, not in your own works, not in your own efforts, but in the grace of Jesus poured out over your life. We got to give God some praise for that. Amen. (laughs) Praise God for his saving work in our lives. I just love this. So Christianity is a vital relationship. It's not an empty religion because Jesus, who was fully God and fully man, took your place. He met the demands of God. The demands for righteousness and holiness and perfection were met in Jesus. And so now the work that you do is to truly believe, to freely receive, and by grace be saved. That's it. That's it. So it's really in Jesus, the end of religion. But here's the problem. Religion dies hard. Religion is hard to undo. And and there are people who would say, yeah, but of course I have to do something, right? I've got to do something. And I would say boldly, but with caution, kind of, you know, that's not true. You don't have to do anything. Jesus did everything, but you get to do a lot of things. You get to live out a loving relationship with God. You get to worship. You get to fellowship with God's people. You get to live a better life than you could on your own. You get to say no to sin and yes to righteousness. You get to live in the grace of God and extend the witness of God. You get to do all of that stuff, but you don't have to do any of it. That's the beauty of the work of Christ. It's powerful transforming. It's wonderful. And so, yes, that's true. But some prefer boundaries. Some prefer limits. And religion is happy to construct that for you. And so people sometimes resist the freedom offered in Christianity because they feel safer within the bounds of religion. And that leads us to our story. Where we are today in the scripture, we're looking at Acts 10 and 11. But before we get there, let me review. We've seen the early church develop. We've seen the spirit poured out. We've seen the power of God at work in his church. And then we get to the point where Stephen is martyred for his faith. And Paul, who was Saul, is converted. And now we step into this brand new season, really. It's quite amazing Luke, who is the writer of Acts, I need to be clear on that, he's the one who wrote Acts and also the book of Luke, same guy. He shifts the focus back now off of Paul, off of Stephen, and onto Peter, back to Peter, who was there at the beginning. And God used him powerfully onto Peter's ministry. And the Holy Spirit really starts to move in amazing ways. And so I'm going to give you four thoughts. Actually, I'm going to give you five thoughts about what happens when the Holy Spirit starts to move. And so when the Holy Spirit starts to move, first, he creates divine appointments. And so I'm going to take you now into the scripture. We're going to look at Acts chapter 10 and 11. Let's start in verse 1. It says, At Caesarea which is a town in Israel outside of Jerusalem on the coast. There was a man named Cornelius, a centurion, which means he was over a hundred soldiers in what was known as the Italian regiment. 
He and his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. One day, at about three in the afternoon, he had a vision. So the Holy Spirit's at work, and he distinctly, in that vision, saw an angel. He saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius. Cornelius started, stared at him in fear. What is it, Lord? He asked. The angel answered, your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Now, send men to Joppa, which by the way was not far, it was on the sea as well, it was close by, and bring back a man named Simon who is called Peter. He's staying with Simon the Tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had gone, Cornelius called two of his servants and a devout soldier who was one of his attendants, and he told them everything that had happened and sent them to Joppa. Wow, a divine appointment. The Holy Spirit shows up, a vision is given, an angel is present in that vision. All of this would make sense to Cornelius. God comes to us as we can receive him. He comes in this beautiful picture to help Cornelius see that God is at work in his life. And so the first thing that happens is the Holy Spirit begins to, to create these divine appointments. And this continues on. This is the first of two visions that we're going to see in the passage we're reading. So when the Holy Spirit starts to move, he creates divine appointments. When the Holy Spirit starts to move, he dismantles religion and brings transformation. So now, in this next passage, we're going to see Peter, who is obviously one of Jesus' disciples, one of the apostles, now through the Holy Spirit, he steps beyond religion in a brand new way. So in the second vision, what happens? Peter's hungry. He's at the house of Simon the Tanner. He goes up on the roof of the house to wait for the food to be provided. And he has a vision. And in this vision, you can read all about it in Acts 10, a sheet comes down out of heaven. Maybe you've heard this part of the story before. And on the sheet are all these animals, reptiles and all kinds of animals that a Jewish person would never touch, certainly not eat. And then a voice comes along with the sheet and says, Peter, rise up, kill and eat. And Peter says, no, 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 no way. I'm not going to do that. That's, that's against the, you know, the religious law that I live under. I'm not going to do that. No way. And so then the sheet goes up and comes down, goes up and comes down three times, the same vision. And while he's having this objection to what the vision is saying, what God is saying to him, these words are spoken to him. And don't call anything impure that I have made clean. Hmm, three times it happened so that there is without a doubt a message. Three times. Don't call anything impure that I have made clean. So he's, now Jesus is pushing on the religious structure that Peter has always lived in where he had a sense of confidence in the boundary of his life. It's now being pressed and Jesus is saying relation, uh, um, re, that relationship to him, it trumps religion. That it's really not about the food, it's about the friendship. It's about the connection to Jesus. And here's the thing, rules and the rituals of the Bible, they are significant. They're like a map that leads us to a treasure. But the treasure is not the rules and the rituals themselves. The treasure is Jesus. 
And so it's a revelation of Jesus. All of the Old Testament law, all of what was written in the scriptures, it's all to bring us to a place where we see Jesus and see him as the real treasure, the real treasure that does for us what we could never do for ourselves. You see, the Jesus that the Bible describes is not portrayed as the founder of a world religion, but the challenger of religion pressing back against it. And Christ came to the earth not to create a new religion, but to permanently shatter every barrier that exists between us and God. That's powerful, good news, friends. So next, starting in verse 17, while Peter was wondering about the meaning of the vision The men sent by Cornelius found out where Simon's house was and stopped at the gate. They called out, asked if Simon, who was known as Peter, was staying there. Just let me make one point. They called out because, according to the Jewish law, which these people knew, they couldn't associate, they couldn't touch them, they wouldn't go in, they stood out and they called. And this is because they were trying to honor the Jewish law and they knew they were Jewish people. In verse 19, While Peter was still thinking about the vision, the spirit said to him, Simon, three men are looking for you, so get up and go downstairs. Do not hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. Verse 21, Peter went down and said to the men, I'm the one you're looking for. Why have you come? The men replied, we have come from Cornelius, the centurion. He is righteous and God-fearing man who is respected by all the Jewish people. A holy angel told him, and you've already heard this part of the story. Now, why am I stopping? I could finish the verse, but I just want you to really get the point. And I hope moving away from this text like that gets your attention. Because you need to understand something. This is maybe one of the most significant chunks of scripture that we have in regard to being New Testament non-Jewish believers. It's that significant. It's so significant that Luke, who is the writer repeats himself over and over again. If you look at Luke 10, right now he's already repeating what he said before that was in Cornelius' vision. And then you go to chapter 11 and the whole story in its entirety is retold as Peter goes you know, to back to the church and tells them, why is it that way? You see, Luke only had so much room and he had, he had years and years of data to bring together to write down, he had a, you know, it was written on a scroll, on a papyrus, the longest being about 30 feet. So he had about 30 feet of real estate to work with. And so he had to be exacting and specific about what he put down or he'd run out of room. And yet he takes the time to say one thing in chapter 10 and then repeat it in chapter 11. Why? Because it's that significant to us. And so don't miss this part. This is the unlocking of the gospel. This is the releasing of the message of Christ to the whole world, not just the Jewish world. And so let's not miss this. See, God loved Cornelius' heart and wanted to bless that. And what it tells us is that Jesus isn't a respecter of persons. There's no hierarchy. There's no in-crowd and out-crowd with Jesus. There's no seniority system. There's no favoritism. This is good news because we all get a new start with Jesus. And I'm so grateful for this. So based on the vision, 
And then based on the conversation with these men about Cornelius, Peter goes with them. And he goes to Cornelius' house. And he takes six others who were Jewish believers with him. So there's the seven of them going. When he arrives, Cornelius meets him outside because he's not sure if he's going to come into his house. But then he invites him in and Peter comes and, and Cornelius tells the story. And also Cornelius has filled his house with seekers. All these people who are interested in knowing about the God of the Bible. And Peter is amazed and knows that the spirit is moving. In fact, what he says reflects what I just said to you a moment ago. Then Peter began to speak. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. You see, when we deal with our religion, we actually open up a path for people to find Jesus. And so today, maybe we're dealing with our religion, and as a result, people can see the grace and the power of Jesus at work in their own lives. You see, it would have been very easy for Christianity to become a new form of Judaism, it would have been very easy. Lock it away with the Jews. Keep it to themselves. You got to kind of, you get the law plus. But that's not what Jesus had in mind. If the gospel didn't reach into the non-Jewish world, it would have never survived. In fact, we won't get to it, but in chapter 12, you see the persecution um, for the Jews in Jerusalem just heats right back up again. James is killed. Peter's arrested. The church is scattered further. And as you read the rest of Acts, what you'll discover is over and over again, they're sending money back to Jerusalem. Why? Because they're suffering. It's really hard. So if it would have been just the Jews, Christianity would have been lost. But it was always God's plan, not just to save the Jews, but to rescue the entire world. And aren't you grateful for that? Because that's why we're here today. Praise God. So Peter and the others with him had to deal with their religion as they stepped into Cornelius' house. And it's amazing what the Holy Spirit can do when we submit to his work and say, okay, obviously you're working. It's outside of what feels natural to me, but I'm okay with it because it is the Spirit of God. So when the Holy Spirit starts to move, he creates divine appointments. When the Holy Spirit starts to move, he dismantles religion and brings transformation. And when the Holy Spirit starts to move, people are saved and they're filled. You see, Peter now begins to preach freely. He says, I get it. I get it. I'm finally seeing it. And he preaches freely the gospel to Cornelius and the others gathered there. And he tells a story about Jesus, about how one of the most beautiful uh, verses um, in, in this passage is about him saying, and God sent Jesus, anointed Jesus, that he might preach the good news and heal all who were oppressed of the devil. That's a powerful verse. It goes on to say, but the Jews took him and they killed him and he rose again. He was crucified and rose again. And then he makes this statement. He says, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. And now let's pick up what happens. It says, while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out 
even on the Gentiles, for they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. Then Peter said, surely no one can stand in the way of their being baptized with water. They've received the Holy Spirit, say this with me, just as we have. So he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked Peter to stay with them for a few days. Wow. Peter's saying, I'm just trying to catch up to what the Holy Spirit is doing. I'm like, I'm flabbergasted. I'm like mouth open. I can't believe what's happening. He must have been looking at the other believers and saying, what's going on? There's another upper room and it's right here in Cornelius' house. Are you kidding me? This is amazing. And he says, okay, well, what are we going to do now? I I guess we should get them baptized in water. Since they've already been filled with the Spirit, they already have God's seal on their lives. Let's catch up. And then beyond that, they say, will you stay with me? And Peter's saying, after this, get me some bacon and a cheeseburger. I'm in. (laughs) Yes, he stayed. He stayed with them for many days. And he helped them, helped them understand more about who Jesus is. He just taught them and poured into their lives and it, it was beautiful. So then Peter goes back to the Jewish Christians and he's there with the Jewish Christians and they criticize him. That's what the Bible says. Now we're into chapter 11 and it says the apostles and the believers throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. Verse two. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers criticized him and said, you went into the house of uncircumcised men and you ate with them. Starting from the beginning. Okay. (laughs) told you. Luke tells the whole story again. Peter told them the whole story. He could have stopped right there. He didn't. He tells the whole story. The whole thing again. So the issue here was eating with Gentiles, which was really about the religious law. You don't do that. You don't go into their house. You don't eat with them. And this was seen as a rejection. What Peter did is a rejection of the Jewish law and tradition. And so Peter makes his defense, but his defense is not an argument. He doesn't say, no, 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 God's doing something new. And there's, there's you know, it's new wine, new wineskin. Remember what Jesus said. This is all part of that. He doesn't argue with them. He simply states the facts. And Peter wisely took those six others with him. So there were seven of them who saw the whole thing. And the reason why that's significant is because Egyptian law says that if there's seven witnesses, it's certainly true. And Roman law says that if this is an important document, we will stamp it with seven seals. And so as a result, those seven witnesses formed a a body that was proof of the facts of what happened. And so Peter's saying, I'm not arguing with you. These are simply the facts and they're undisputed. We are seven witnesses. And here's the thing about Christianity. Christianity, the proof is in the facts. Some of you go, whoa, Andy, I'm not sure about the facts. Well, let me tell you the facts. The facts are that the gospel works. The fact is that lives are changed. The fact is that we experience people being completely transformed because of the power of God at work in them. And the truth is the spirit is poured out on people. That's the proof. That's the proof. That's the reality, and that proof is undeniable. Those are the facts. And so Peter shares the facts, and then he says in verse 17 of chapter 11, so if God gave them the same gift, say it with me, same gift, come on, 
Let's, let's, it's participation hour, everybody. Same gift. Let's say it together. Same gift he gave us who believe in the Lord Jesus. Who was I to think that I could stand in God's way? Same gift. The exact same gift. These guys realized it was the seal of the Holy Spirit. It was the power of the Holy Spirit when they saw the same thing happening that happened to them. So what am I supposed to do, guys? He says, you judge for yourselves. And here's, here's the deal. When the Holy Spirit starts to move, all the things I've shared are true, but when the Holy Spirit starts to move, the church trades religion for joy. For joy. And so what's this next verse say? When they heard this, they had no further objections and praise God saying this. And here's the great unlocking of the gospel to the world. It says, so then... It's emphatic. Even to Gentiles, God has granted repentance that leads to life. And all the Gentiles in the room said, amen. <laughs> Praise God. We're in. That's the moment. You got in right there. And praise God for it. Our lives have been transformed by Jesus. And here's the proof of the facts right here. Everybody agrees they're in. And so when the Holy Spirit starts to move, new churches are planted. So Luke just continues on with the storyline and he says, listen, let me show you some of the results. When the Spirit starts to move, all of a sudden we've got all these things happening. It's, you know, the gospel is unlocked and now those, this is Acts eleven nineteen. Now those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed, traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, spreading the word only among Jews. So that was what would have happened previous. But then verse 20 picks up the storyline. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. News of this reached the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived, he saw what the grace of God had done. He was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit, just like Stephen, and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Yes! The gospel is unlocked. The Gentiles are receiving. And so there's a ladder here, and Luke makes it very clear in his, in his teaching through Acts. First step in the ladder was Philip, because of persecution, leaving Jerusalem and going to Samaria and preaching. But Samaritans are partial Jews. So, you know, okay, good. It's just a little step out there. And then Peter, the vision, goes to Cornelius. But Cornelius invited him and asked him to come. And Cornelius was a God-fearer, so he was kind of almost grafted in. He was living a Jewish way of life. But then this third step happens. There's no half-Jew. There's no invitation there's simply an evangelistic appetite to spread the word of God to whomever will listen and the gospel is unleashed to the Gentiles. So we are now standing as people of great blessing because of that third step. I have two thoughts for you as we close. The first one is this. We all need to search our lives and reject any form of legalism 
and accept a deep, vital, transforming relationship with Jesus. This church cannot save you. Membership in this church will not save you. Your relationship with Jesus Christ is the most important thing. It's vital. It's vital. Coming to church is not salvation. By grace, through faith, in the finished work of Jesus, you are saved. So let the Holy Spirit now do his work. Let him move in you. Is there something in there that needs to get out? Is there some place where you have allowed legalism or, or religion to replace the vital relationship that you were called to in Jesus? Let's remove that. And on the other side of that, we all need an upper room experience just like Cornelius and his family and those gathered in his house had. And maybe what we need right now is a fresh move of the Spirit in our lives to propel us into this summer with a great sense of joy and freedom and celebration because where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is legalism? No. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. So Holy Spirit, come. Holy Spirit, come. We welcome you. Holy Spirit, fill us. And Lord, we stand on the doorstep of a new century as a church. And we say, we're not interested in religion. We're happy, Lord, to, to honor the past. But Lord, we're here to embrace this moment and to build the future. And so we say, no thanks, Lord. We don't want religion and you don't want it for us. But we say, yes, to the fresh moving of your spirit in our lives. And so, Lord, just like we read today, give us the same gift you gave Cornelius. We choose to replace religion with vital relationship. And we pray right now in Jesus' name, break off the spirit of religion and give us an immediate freedom in your Holy Spirit. And Jesus, thank you. Thank you for coming not to build religion, but to shut it down and pouring out your grace as a guide for us, your grace that teaches us to say no, your grace that leads us into a vibrant life in Jesus. And we receive by faith the free gift of salvation and ask that you would fill us just like you did Cornelius and his house. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Amen.